Well, God bless you. Welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible study as we continue in the Old Testament. We happen to be in the book of First Kings. If you want to turn in your Bibles to First Kings chapter 11, we've come as far as uh, verse 13 here. We're up to verse 14 here. And while you're turning there, just a couple announcements. Um, I think I mentioned this last on Sunday, but just so you know, there's a marquee now. Uh, if you have a, a, a child in the toddler or nursery room, please pay attention to this. There's numbers that will come up. That way you know if you need to go and um, help, you know, the teacher or there's something needed in the nursery or toddler room like that. You should have been given a ring with a little number on that. So that's where you'll look at that number. That's new. The other thing is um, some of you guys are familiar. We do soups on every year or Wednesday nights right around 530 uh, we have you all come in, and it really helps a lot of people, especially with dinner and traveling. And so what we do is we, we make soup, and we put soups on, and we have you all come on in, and we, we have a potluck together of soups. So usually what happens is my wife, Lisa, makes uh, chicken soup for the day, chicken noodle soup, and then um, our lovely sister here is going to make a whole lot of different soups. Our other lovely sister here is going to make a whole lot of different soups. Uh, Jen McEvers and, and Jean will get all of the ladies, you know, that want to, help Jean and they'll make specialty soup so maybe it'll be a broccoli and cheddar or a potato soup and that way you have the chicken noodle if you'd like it or you have a specialty soup as a choice and we do that really to to help minister and to help you also that way you don't have to rush home to try to get to home make a meal and then try to get back here on time and especially with the winter months and the weather it starts to change I always pray for you I worry about you I don't want anybody getting in accidents that way so I'd rather you get in here I know you're safe you're eating we bless the food and then we partake together okay so that's going to be starting the first week of December that's the first Wednesday of December and it goes all the way until the last Wednesday of March okay so it'll be up on the events calendar um, which brings me to my second announcement so so uh, I hope all of you have downloaded on your Apple or whatever device it is the events calendar for the church. That's where you can find out all the events and different things that are happening. I want to encourage you that if you haven't done that, please go ahead and download that off of the Apple or Google Store because that's where we put our updates. And Kelly has uh, Ms. Q from the church office has that, you know, three months, sometimes four or five months out there worth of updates. I'm also going to ask her um, to, for those that don't have a computer, maybe to print out a couple copies of the calendar that can be just set um, there. So if you need one, you can just take it with you if you don't have a computer or anything like that and share that. So just so we can get those housekeeping things in order. And, um, and uh, well, let's turn our focus to the Word of God now. So we've come as far, again, as I said, in chapter uh, 11 here in verse 14 in 1 Kings, uh, where we left off was you know, about 20 plus years into the ministry, Solomon begins to turn his heart from God uh, to his wives, plural. And because of that, that ultimately leads in, in just idolatry that you can't imagine. I mean, 700 wives, 300 concubine, that's a thousand different wives that way. And that's a thousand different sins, okay? Because each one of those wives is drawing him after one of their gods. Please remember this. In, in every, every marriage, um, if you're an unbeliever or even if you're a believer but you're compromised, you're bringing a god into that marriage. Please understand that. You're bringing some gods into your marriage, whether it's, it's your idols, your work, your whatever it might be, unless it's the one true God, Jesus Christ, Okay. So that's something that we just have to be careful and be, be aware of it, be prayed up for it, 
and understand that, you know, that certainly doesn't honor God and his glory. So because Solomon continues in this, for the next 20 years, really to the end of his ministry of 40 years, we'll read here in the coming chapters, he's, he's going to obviously die that way, but um, right before chapter 12. But what we're going to take away from this is these, the first 20 years were really just amazing, like any, any other time in, in Israel's history. Uh, such prosperity, such a blessing to see the Shekinah glory in the temple with the Lord. And then the latter 20 years, all for naught. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but I can't think of a more sad uh, situation, a more sad character in the whole Bible than Solomon, this man that was gifted by God uh, with such wisdom, and yet he didn't apply the obedience to the wisdom he was given. He didn't apply the application to the wisdom. And uh, I think we all see that today in our world, the things that are going on, this lack of applying God's obedience and application to our lives and to this lost and dying world. So as we turn our attention here in verse 14, what God is going to do at this point is he's going to raise up three adversaries. Okay? And you might be wondering why he's going to do this. Well, you know, Hadad and Rezon and Jeroboam. And the reason he's going to do that is because God doesn't do things to afflict or hurt anyone. He does these things or he allows these things so that he can draw us into reconciliation, into right relationship with him. And that's his heart. That's his heart for all of humanity, to be in a deep, intimate relationship with him. And sometimes he will allow difficulties and adversaries to come in our lives that way, to draw us closer to himself so that we would repent. Let's bow our heads, we'll pray, and we'll begin verse by verse. Father, as we're going to read tonight, Lord, we're going to Read very difficult and hard passages, Lord, to see that you have just blessed your people Israel in such a way, Lord. And God, in particular King Solomon, just choosing second best instead of your very best, Lord. God, I pray for all our hearts here that you wouldn't let us look to the left or to the right, but we'd stay perfectly in your will in direct obedience to you, Jesus. And then, Lord, if there is sin in our lives, if there is something going on with, uh, and you've allowed adversaries or situations, God, I pray that there would be a humble heart and humble hearts in this sanctuary here tonight or in the homes, Lord, or in the radio, in the cars that would cause people to turn from their sin and turn to you. Because, God, we know your arms are wide open just looking to embrace us if we'll just turn to you and just follow your commandments, statutes, and judgments. So, God, we pray you'll wash our minds, you'll renew our minds here tonight, and you'll give us that peace that surpasses all understanding. We pray all this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Now, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king in Edom. Now, if you go back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, okay, you'll find the portion of scripture that talks about when David was going through and conquering and doing different things like that, that he had gone and he had taken the Edomites and he had made them forced servants, what we would call slaves today. 
He had made them forced servants to uh, basically work and do a lot of the building projects, different things like that for Israel. And this man, Hadad, we know he is going to escape to Egypt. Well, at that point, apparently, somehow he was kept from this whole thing that had happened. So what he has on his heart is revenge. He wants to avenge his family and the heritage and the lineage of the Edomites here. So uh, we're going to read these passages, and it's hard if you don't have the context of 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14. So it says, For it happened when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain, after he had killed every male in Edom, and again, that was common in that time, you would occupy an area, you would take it over, and then you would destroy the men in that area so that they couldn't do what? Raise up an army to eventually, you know, try to take you out. So again, very common at that time, and so he had done that. And, and because of this, for six months, Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom. That Hadad fled to go to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, a portion food for him, and gave him land. That's pretty remarkable. This man is fleeing this area. He's going, he ends up making it to Egypt, he gets around the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh just opens up his house, he opens up uh, basically his table that way, he provides provisions for this man, he had no other relationship with this man and anything, there was something about this man he was just drawn to, and he, he opens up and he proportions and portions food for him and, and gives him land, I mean he doesn't, we have no other, uh, anything else in scripture that tells us he had a relationship with this man. And he actually begins to trust this man and empower this man in different aspects in Egypt. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as a wife the sister of his own wife. That is the sister of Queen Takapanes. And so now we see that the royal, because Pharaoh's royal, he gives the sister. So even now he's being brought into some of this family line, this royal line in that way. Then the sister, Takapanes, before him, Gurbanuthoth, his son from Takapanes, weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genevath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. What is he really saying? Let me depart. I have a grudge to settle. Now that I know David's gone, he's out of the picture, I'm going to go back and avenge my Edomite brothers because of what Israel did. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, Nothing, but do let me go anyway. And God raised up another adversary. So this is the second, right? We, we talked about there's three here. This is the second adversary. And this adversary is from the north. And he raises up this adversary against him. And his name is Zophar or, or Rezar, if you, per, if you per, prefer that. The son of Eladad, who had fled from his lord, Hadiazar, king of Zobah or Zovah. 
So he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders. When David killed those of Zovah, and they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. Now, that should tell us something right here. Verse 24, underline this in your Bible. What we already see happening under Solomon's reign that we didn't see happening under David's reign is a weakness. A weakness. Once land that was once secured, God's promised land, at the height of you know, his kingdom that way, now all of a sudden, because of the sin, because of everything going on with the compromise and the idols and the high places and the worship, all of a sudden we see the land starting to be taken back from Israel. Okay? The compromise. You see what it does? It le- a little leaven spoils or leavens the whole lump. And that's what we see here. But it's because of this compromise, David conquered and held this tam- territory. Now Solomon's losing territory. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon besides the trouble that Hadad caused, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. Now, so far, we really don't know with these two men that were, you know, uh, adversaries. We don't know exactly how they were afflicting Solomon. I mean, sort of we do with, you know, the, the second guy here, right? Because he comes back and he starts going back with the land and he's trying to take Damascus and Razor, you know, and that whole thing. But we don't, you know, Zophar, uh, we, we kind of get an idea. But, but the first guy, Hadad, we, we don't really know how he was an adversary to Solomon. But the third gentleman that we're going to talk about tonight and spend a whole lot of time talking as we start reading the rest of the passages through Scripture, Jeroboam. You're going to hear his name a lot for the next coming months and the things that he's done. Now, it's interesting. You know, when we think of Jeroboam, we know he's, or maybe you don't, but he's, he's one of the kings, okay, of the northern kingdom that way. So right now it's a single kingdom, but eventually Rehoboam, his son, is going to take it. It's going to be two kingdoms that's divided, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Judah and Benjamin make up the southern kingdoms, and then the other tribes, ten tribes, make up the northern kingdom, okay? And under Rehoboam, what's going to eventually happen is you're going to have this split, like I mentioned, and then you're going to have Jeroboam. Now, there's really no good kings, as we'll study this, that ever come out of the northern kingdoms, out of those ten tribes. They're all evil, and they all do evil in sight of the Lord as we continue to study this. But that wasn't the plan for Jeroboam, actually. God's plan for Jeroboam originally, and he uses a prophet, and we'll read about that this evening. Initially, because of Solomon's sin, just like the sin of, if you remember, Saul with David, that he was going to rip the kingdom from Saul and give it to David. The plan was to rip the kingdom from Solomon, not all of them, but a portion of them, and to give that to Jeroboam, had he followed in God's timing and will and course of action. But we're going to see that Jeroboam is not a patient man. He's not long-suffering, and he's not waiting on the will of the Lord. And because of that, he is going to strive. He is going to try to make these things happen, and he's going to end up Uh, basically throwing it all away. What God had wanted to bless and give him, he laid out this beautiful thing for him, planned for him, and he's going to throw it all away, and he's going to basically commit, uh, other than Solomon in that way, again, some of the most, uh, the worst idolatry that we're going to see in Israel because he's going to set up high places and he's going to cause the ten tribes to sin. He's going to cause them all to enter into sin. So this is all going to be multiplied to his count. Because a man of authority is going to be doubly judged that way. So let's continue on here. Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, and if you want to pronounce it uh, the right way in the Hebrew, it would be uh, 
Yahweh-Roam would be how you'd say it in Hebrew. We would say Jeroboam, lo. The son of Nebat, or Nevat, because bees are pronounced like bees in Hebrew, Nevat, the Ephraimite, and Zerda, whose mother's name was Zerah. A widow also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damage of the city of David, his father. So we're going to find out that this is going to be a formidable adversary here. And what he didn't like was the forced labor. This is a man that watched Jeroboam, didn't like the forced labor that Solomon had implemented when the Milo was built. And he's got some real strong opinions about it. And he's going to step up and he's going to say something. And, you know, he's part of that construction effort and what have you. So this is what rises up in him and why he's upset to begin with. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. Okay, that, who else does that sound like? In some ways, it sounds like King David, doesn't it? He was a mighty man, a man of valor, okay? He's a formidable adversary. Uh, Solomon, we don't read that. We don't read that about him. Seeing that the young man, oh, sorry, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, uh, he made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So just think about that. Here's a guy that doesn't like the forced labor, and what does he do? He puts him in charge of it all. Do you see the rub here? He likes him because he's ingenious, he's creative, he sees he's bright and brilliant, but he's also going to put him in a place where he can watch him because he says, if I put you in charge of him, then I know when you're disobedient or you don't follow through, I got you either way, right? So Solomon's certainly coy in the way he's playing this. Now, it happened at the time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met with him on the way, and he clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. The idea here is everybody in Israel, you had an inner garment and you had an outer garment, a robe. He's talking about the outer garment here, okay, and it was a new one. And Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him, uh, that was on Jeroboam, and he tore it into 12 pieces. How do you like that? You know, hey, nice to meet you, Prophet Ahijah. And he starts ripping up his robe, you know, and nice to meet you too. What are you going to tear next? Well, he tears them into 12 pieces, this robe here. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give the 10 tribes to you. You know what we call this? We're going to see this a lot as we start to study more of the prophets. It's called an action sermon. This is an action sermon, a prophetic event happening that's being portrayed out that we can understand. It's called an action sermon. He's actually doing it. He's living it. Like Elijah or um, Ezekiel is a better example. And you know, in Ezekiel, turn on the left side, Ezekiel, turn on the right side, you know, claw at the door in the temple like that. Those are called action sermon when he's actually acting, acting these things out. So that those that are observing begin to understand as a pictorial, what is God saying to them? Because they're obviously not listening any longer. So now he's saying, hey, what you see and what you hear, pay attention. So he's giving this man an action sermon, right? God is speaking. So he says he's basically going to take 10 of the kingdoms and he's going to give it to him. And the other two is going to be, you know, uh, kept with uh, Rehoboam. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me, please underline that in your Bibles, and worshipped Asheroth, 
the goddess of the Sidonians. That's the sex goddess, okay? That's what that was, sexual immorality. Uh, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. And have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. Do you remember when Solomon was approached by God twice? And he went to him and he said, look, stay with my commandments, statutes, and judgments. Don't commit idolatry. Don't be given unto these other gods, you know. And then right, what does he do right after that? Takes on all these riches. Again, a violation of Deuteronomy 17. What was the next thing he did? Do you remember? Took on chariots for army and military purposes. Again, a violation of Deuteronomy 17, strike two. And then finally, the third strike, he took on wives. Deuteronomy 17, he was not to have or bring unto himself wives that way. Genesis uh, is very clear in the beginning. One man, one woman for life. That's God's design. And so here we see that because of this, because of this compromise, because of this disobedience, that it has led to the Davidic uh, covenant and promise while he's honoring that because Jesus Christ will come through the line of David, he's also going to strip these other tribes and he's going to give them to Jeroboam, or that's the plan initially, the how it's supposed to go, as a way of correction here, okay? However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And his son I will give one tribe, and my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. Isn't that the truth? Through Jesus Christ. The city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. And that's why in prophetic times like this, we always keep our eyes on Jerusalem, always keep our eyes on Israel. That is the timepiece for the prophetic timeline. It is not anywhere else. The prophetic time police is always in regards to Israel and what's happening to Israel. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be if you heed all, and here it is, underline verse 38, because he's doing the same thing he did with Solomon. If you do it this way, it's a Susan Vassarill covenant. If you do this, I will do that. It's not a royal grant, right? We're like an Abrahamic covenant where God does everything. There's a Susan Vassarill. You do this, I'll do that. And this is what he's going to violate. Then it shall be if you heed all the command and you walk my ways and do what is right in my sight and keep my statutes, my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. This is a promise. Just and obey the blessing will come. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever, right? And we know that because Jesus Christ came from that line, as prophesied. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. Who does this sound like? That, yes. Now, are you starting to see the comparison? Are you see this man that, I mean, all this wisdom, all this blessing, all this prosperity, everything that God had given him, he's now insecure and, 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 you know, chasing and he's growing mad like that. And now he's becoming paranoid and he, he turns around and he says, kill Jeroboam, just like Saul said, kill David. We see that's what's happening. Isn't that what happens? Sin. 
When we have sin in our lives, even hidden sin, our sin finds us out. It always does. And the damage that sin does because we try to keep things, you know, hidden or, or what have you, you know what it does? It, it can drive you mad or insane. Do you remember when David faked insanity like that? You know, and, and nobody was like, well, he hasn't been on the run. You know, nobody questioned it. You know, it would have been odd normally. But because he had been chased by Saul in the wilderness like that and everything that was going on. We see this here. It's, it's sort of a wake-up call. Sin begat sin. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to afflict the descendants of David because of this, but, but not forever. So Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and it was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And uh, just like Saul there. Verse 41. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? Now we don't have that book. Obviously that wasn't inspired. God decided that we didn't need to keep that. I don't think we need to see anything more about Solomon. Do you? I think we've seen enough at this point. Uh, you know, in these 40 years, uh, we were able to see quite enough of a character of this man and what happens. And quite honestly, we've begun to see that He's taken the same path that Saul took, Solomon did. And we know how that ends. We know how this ends. What do you think, friends? Uh, do you think that your sin is different? My sin is different? That if we somehow compromise and engage in idolatry and sin, somehow we think, isn't it interesting how the brain works? We think we can manage it. Yet every example in history and biblical theology teaches us that our sin destroys us. And it not only affects us, but what did it do here? It affected the whole nation of Israel. The whole nation of Israel. And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem, all of Israel, of all, over, all of Israel, was 40 years. So again, 20 good years, 20 bad years, evil years, if I can say it that way. But when we think back on Solomon, what do you think about him? Here's a guy that began his race really, really well, but did not finish the race well. Isn't that all that's remembered? It's not remembered how you begin. It's always remembered how you finish. It's always how you finish. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So sad. Started well, but obviously didn't end well. Very, very sad. Now, the other interesting point as we begin chapter 12, we're going to read about Rehoboam now. This is Solomon's son. He's the only son that we're going to read about in all of Scripture. Out of all the thousand wives and all the things he had there, 700 wives, 300 concubines, we read nothing else. God just absolutely stops that whole line and everything else that's going on there. We read nothing else. We only read about this man, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So a coronation service, right? But not so fast. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, or Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. Then, or that they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, so picture Jeroboam and these other men. They come up to Rehoboam, uh, just to keep that straight. Remember, he's the guy that's going to be over the southern kingdom. Jeroboam's the guy that's over the northern kingdom, okay? Just remember that, if you can 
Get that because we'll be going back and forth. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on all of us, and we will serve you. Do, do you remember how we did that? Through taxes. Remember we covered that a couple chapters back when all of the money and everything that was coming in, Solomon, and he just kept taxing and taxing the people. He didn't lighten the load. Even with all that money, he didn't lighten the burden. So they're coming to him, and Jeroboam saying, hey, if you'll lighten the load here, we'll follow you. We'll go through with the coronation. You'll be king. But you need to lighten this, right? Why do you think Jeroboam was part of that? Because Jeroboam was head of what force at one point? He was head of the forced labor. He was the head of the union. So now he comes in and he's advocating for the people, for the workers. Do you see that here? I mean, that's basically what he's doing. He's coming back and advocating for the work. Hey, lighten the tax load, huh? How about that? If you lighten the tax load, we'll stay. He still didn't like the forced labor idea. And I'm sure Rehoboam, Solomon's son, understood that. He understood exactly what he was saying here and what was at play. So he said to them, depart for three days and come back to me. And the people departed. Good wisdom. We don't always have to give an answer, yes or no, right in the moment. We can pray. We can seek God. That's good wisdom. He begins with wisdom. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders. Again, good wisdom. He goes to some of the elders, the uh, older, more mature men of the faith in the Israel there, and he calls them in and says, I'd like to know what you think I should do. And then he's going to go with some of the younger men, and we're going to see the difference here. Then King Rehoboam consulted the others who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived, and he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? Well, that's <laughs> that's a problem just to, out of the gate. Underline that in your Bible. These people, not our people, my people, these people, the, you know, the, the people I got to deal with, you know, no, 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 that's not the right heart. This is starting all wrong. This is all wrong. And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them, isn't that interesting? They start there. He says, if you lead by servant leadership, if you lead by example, okay, and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Now, we've seen this counsel before. If you hold your finger here, turn to Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 in your Bibles. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whoever desires, verse 27, I'll just start right in chapter 20. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, your servant, doulos, the bondservant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself or to give his life a ransom for many. That's what Christ has commanded us to do. That's, that's how we're to live. A true servant is willing to do whatever's needed. It's not, well, I don't do that, you know. That's one of the things that sort of is a litmus test, isn't it? If you have uh, maybe in your jobs and different things, and maybe there's something that um, maybe you're an employer and, or maybe you, you're a manager or maybe you have a responsibility at your job and you have some people that res you know, uh, report into you and um, they come to you one day and say, boy, I, I'm having a hard time with this or that, and you know, I can't be bothered with that right now. What kind of example is that giving them? You know, is that, is that exemplifying Christ? Certainly not. What would Jesus do, right? He'd roll up his sleeves. 
right? One of the things I always uh, pictured is Jesus Christ was healing. I mean, we know that when a woman, you know, tried to get close to him, she touched just the hem of his robe. He said what? He felt the he felt something leave him, something change. I don't know if it's that idea of drain, so to speak, but something had changed in his spirit or in his physical being. We don't get a lot of details there, but something had changed. How about you? When you work a day and you really, you know, you do all things heartily unto the Lord, you, you, Lord, you come home, you're tired, right? You're, you're whooped. You've, you've given it all to God. You know, you've served well. You've been faithful at your job or whatever you do or in the home, uh, whatever it is, okay? And you come home and you're just whooped like that. You're just poured out, you know? That's the idea here. And what, what would it be like if, uh, if you came home like that and, and you, you know, somebody's been serving at home all day, maybe watching the kids, maybe your wife or husband or whatever watching the kids, and, and you came home and, you know, what would it be like if you rolled up your sleeves and said, you know, I'll take the baby or I'll take the, the you know, honey, you go lay down or, or, you know, honey, you go rest for a little bit. Or maybe before you even roll in the house, how about you sit in your driveway for a few minutes and you open your Bible and you just read your Bible and write your heart before you even, even walk in that door. You know, I remember when I uh, co-labored or even before I was even in ministry, I can remember many times the Lord would convict me and, and challenge me with this because I'd be coming home, my wife, we have four children, you little kids, everything going on. And, you know, I'm always, what am I thinking about my day? How did my day go? And I'm not even recognizing what I'm walking into into that moment. Uh, you know, the, the cereal all over her, you know, the baby stuff all over her, you know. And she's trying to, hi, honey, you know, hi, honey. I mean, she looks whooped. She had a harder job than I did. She had a harder job than I did for sure. And, you know, how often did I stop and, uh, you know, Say, honey, let me take the baby. Go ahead, you know. Go, go ahead. Go lay down. Go, you know. Or can I make you dinner? What can I do to serve you? I mean, that's something that the Lord's just been really checking my heart on lately. You know. Some of you, I know, you know, you're taking turns. You have children. You come to prayer. You, you whether you come to how how often do you let your spouse go in and pray and you watch the children? Do you ever switch up? How often do you turn around and? You know, uh, certain, you know, days and yard work, you know, you switch off with your, your spouse. How about, you know, your, your husband or your wife serves in different capacity than church and you, you serve the other way, or you meet them where they're at. How often does that happen, you know? I'm not thinking of anybody in particular right now. Just nobody, I don't want anybody here going, oh, great, you know, he's, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just thinking of my own heart, to be honest with you. I'm thinking of my own heart in this action. And so how often, you know, Am I thinking about those things? How often do I do those things? And so that's, that's what's sort of pressing on my heart here as I read this is, you know, that idea of servant leadership and what God has called us to do, how God has called us to serve. And I think if we begin to demonstrate that and we're faithful to do those things, I believe God honors that and blesses that. And that's the wisdom that these elders were trying to give to Rehoboam. But as we're going to find out, he's not going to listen to that. He's not going to acknowledge servant leadership. Jesus Christ was the perfect example of a servant leader. Well, let's continue here. But he rejected the advice, verse 8, which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who were growing up with him, and he stood before him. So he basically gets his pals and says, what do you guys think? You know, 
And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people? Now all of a sudden, hey, you're part of this too. How should we? Why wasn't it that way with the elders? How should we do this? It just shows you where he was already leaning to begin with. This was sort of baked. He's going through the motions here. He's already got the plan out in his head. Uh, You have a choice in this, you know. You can be a Nicolaitan or not be a Nicolaitan. You can lord over people or not being lord over people. And that's example here, right? What advice do you give? How should we answer this people we have spoken to saying, lighten your yoke with which your father has put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him saying, thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you saying, your father made our yoke, very, or made our yoke heavy, excuse me, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. You know what he's trying to say here is he's saying my strength is in my finger. This idea here that my, the strength in my finger is stronger than my father's waist or chest or, or girth that way. That's what he, he's trying to say. The strength I have is nothing. You know, my father's strength was nothing compared to my strength, the vanity and the pride here. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chased you with whips, but I will chase you with scourges. He's he's saying worse. This man is all talk. Okay, this isn't humility, right? There's nothing like that. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. Please. He's speaking to the church, Jesus Christ. It's obviously it's the book of Revelation. It's the book of Christ, Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's speaking to a church that's loveless, right? It's called the Church of Ephesus, as we know it, a church that leads their first love. Now, look, I want to be clear. I don't want people to misunderstand this or walk away here tonight with the wrong idea. Look, if you're called to responsibility and authority that way or authority and responsibility, you're called to do the right thing. You're not called to let people steal from the company or walk all over you or not be faithful to the things that they're hired to do, right? You, you are put in charge and you are asked to run maybe their business or something for them, or maybe you have your own business and you're, you're to do all things heartily unto the Lord. This isn't saying that God doesn't want you um, to set a status quo or to outlie how things should operate. That's that's not what this is saying, because I've seen people take this passage and they say, see, you know, you, you know, and it leads to all kinds of things. But what he's going to say here to this church, Jesus Christ, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So a Nicolaitan was one that lorded over the people. It wasn't one that did that in a motive of heart to try to motivate or try to help or protect or lead or anything like that. You know, I was just talking to my pastor this last week. We were actually talking. We both just ordered. He ordered a book. I ordered a book. We were reading, you know, we're talking about this book. It's a good book. Uh, it's, it's how leadership's being done in the church today. You either have an absentee leadership model where there's no authority at all and people just come and go and some of you are nodding your head, so you've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. And, and that's not biblical, right? That's not biblical. You will answer, you know, as a pastor, you will answer to God for the things that you were entrusted, the people you were entrusted with, certainly, right? That's not biblical. However, if you come down and you start 
slamming every single person, every single situation. What are you doing? You're supposed to be here five hours early. Why are you not, you know, and you start really laying into them like that. Um, or you, you're, you're giving them false expectations or things to do uh, that there's no way possible humanly that they could do those things. That's what a Nicolaitan does. He, he does it for power. The motive isn't to lead, feed, or protect. The motive is to somehow exercise authority because somehow he likes it or whatever, you know? I, I think a lot of pastors in churches today, I know in the Calvary Chapel movement, um, you know, I, I bet you that if the Lord said uh, to them, <laughs> pass the baton uh, to your assistant pastor, he's, he's now going to be the senior pastor, I don't think any of us would fight it. I don't think any of us would go, no, I want to hold on to the power, man. We'd be like, oh, here you go. I've been faithful. And I mean that. I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean that in an honest way. Like, I think that's the humility of a lot of the men that I know that, that, that are senior pastors in Calvary chapels. They, they don't have this desire to hold on. I mean, certainly they're not going to quit on the flock or anything like that. But they don't, it's not a power trip for them. You know, they take serious what God's called them to, and it weighs heavy on them. It weighs heavy on them because they want to be faithful to the Lord. And, and honestly, most of the time, you know, assistants or even though people have no idea. Other senior pastors may talk, but people have no idea the things that are going on in the hearts, in the minds, just like you, right? You have the same thing in your jobs and situations. Don't you, you assume responsibility, don't you? Um, whether you're trusted for children or different things, you want to do things heartily. It, it matters. It matters unto the Lord. He's a God of details. And so it's, it's trying to find that right, the right way to do that um, without compromising. And I think that's, that's what we're, we're reading here is that, you know, Rehoboam is starting to compromise. He's not turning around and listening to the elders that are saying, hey, you know what? There might be a better way to do this. Um, you know, he, he's not saying, hey, can we try it this way? If that doesn't work, we'll do this, right? That, that, would you agree that's sort of a compromise? We'll try it. That, we'll do it this way. Okay. He's not doing that. He's, he, he's telling them right out of the gate, even before he met with the elders, he already in his mind had a plan baked of how he wasn't going to listen to the elders, but he was going to listen to those of his youth. And, and, and what's that going to cause? Groupthink. They're just going to be passing the same ideas around, right? There's, there's no, that's why it's really a smart thing for churches in the body to have a diverse elder group. It's one of the things that I'm, I'm most blessed about this church. Our elders, you know, we're very careful before we hand hands on a man that way. Uh, we get to know him a long time. But you have people that are what the world would call professionals, and you have people that the world would say, you know, aren't professionals. We're all professionals. I see them all as professionals. But the point is, is you have all different types of walks of life there, and they're, they're all faithful. And I think that gives you a multitude of good counselors. And the same thing with pastors. You, you know, the system pastors here. We have system pastors that... Uh, are, you know, they've worked 30 years in a company, faithful, and then you have others that are still co-laboring right today, you know, still in the middle of the, of the grind, and, and you get those two spectrums. That's, that's what wisdom, isn't it? Because you get different perspectives from each side of that, and I think that's the same thing uh, with your friends. I mean, if you surround yourself with friends, which I encourage you to do, godly, Christ-centered friends, I encourage you, you know, always have Barnabases, always have Timothys in your life, and always have Pauls. 
Always have a, a, a myriad of counselors so you get a lot of different wisdom and counsel. And, and I'm spending a little time on this today because I think, quite honestly, a lot of the things that happen in churches or in our lives individually that cause division is because we, we either get away from that kind of counseling uh, or the myriad of, myriad of counseling, or we get, like, clicks. You know what clicks are? You get clicks. Pastors can get a click. Assistant pastors can be a click. Elders can be a click. We can all be clicks if we're not careful to all be teachable, all be servants, all understand the example of servant leadership. And that's the danger that I, it happens in ministry. I'm not sure if you guys know that, but that's a danger in ministry. A lot of times, senior pastors, they can, we'll get together and they all say the same thing. Assistant pastors, they get, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all, you know, and they're way over here. And elders may be over here. You know, you get, and it can happen to any one of us. I think humility is to come back and turn around and say, you know, am I being a knuckleheadson? Am I, am I leading, feeding, protecting or is there another motive in my heart of why I'm doing what I'm doing? I think that's all a question we have to ask before the Lord. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke upon you, I will add to your yoke, my father, uh, chastened with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So Joe, Joe Baron, um, yes, <laughs> and all the people came to Rehoboam, Jeroboam, the third day as the king had rejected, saying, come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them accordingly to the ad advice of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father uh, chastened or chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. You know what that is, right? It's the, the metal and the part of a bone, and they take that and they would take the whip that could be 15, 16, 18, 24 inches, depending on the size, and you would use that. Um, it's not what you would think like a long seven foot, but they would be like this long and you would grab it. And literally, if you would hit somebody, it would take chunks out of them because of the metal and the bone that was used here, okay? So he, he's, he's painting a very gruesome picture, a very, very gruesome picture to these men. He says that uh, I will add a yoke uh, to you that way with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word. Did you just read that? What just happened? Fulfilled prophecy. Did you catch that? That's fulfilled prophecy. Which the Lord had spoken to Ahijah, the prophet, the Shilonite, the Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, when all of Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What shall have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. So we have the official split at this point here. This is when you have the split of the northern and southern kingdom in Scripture. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. And again, that's going to be Judah and Benjamin. The, then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue. I just want you guys to read loud and clear what he does. He sends the IRS. That's what he does here. He sends the tax man. Because it wasn't bad enough a moment ago. He turns around and he sends these guys that just said, hey, don't, you know, lighten the load. Don't make the load heavy. And so what does he do? He sends out the tax guy. He, not a smart move. Not at, this is not a man that's working with all cylinders here. 
But all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. And that, that's to his account, isn't it? Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee Jerusalem. There was a revolt on his hand at this point. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now it happened to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, that they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all of Israel. Again, fulfilled prophecy back to chapter 11, verses 29 through 39. There was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel, that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shimei, the man of God, saying, this is just one man, I want us to just pay attention here, this one man, speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to rest to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of God. Isn't that interesting? Rehoboam wouldn't listen to a handful of elders. But at this point, because the moving of the Lord, and isn't it so awesome how God does this? God would have been right in saying, hey, you know, I give you up to yourself. You, you want these things? I'll give you up to yourself. But he's so long-suffering. He's so gracious. He comes back and he actually says, you know what? He says, I'm going to send one man there. I'm going to send one guy. And this one man is going to bring peace to save 180,000 men. They're all related right here. This is Israel we're talking about. There's a civil war again. And he's going to take these 180,000. And he's going to, this one man is going to, by giving word and, and Rehoboam accepting this word, it's going to spare 180,000 lives. I just want us to understand the, the cost and the weight of the decisions and the things we do and the things we think about, the things we say, the way we act, the way we conduct ourselves. Then Jeroboam. So now we're going back to Jeroboam again, northern kingdom, ten tribes, built Shechem. He actually makes Shechem the capital. This will become the capital of the northern kingdom at this point, Shechem here. In the mountains of Ephraim, and dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Peniel. Now here's a question I have for you tonight. Did God tell him to do this? God already told him that he was going to do what? He, he gave the example, remember Hijah the prophet? He says, I'm going to tear up the robe, ten pieces. I'm going to give you these things. He was going to do it. God was going to do all of this. But now we see Jeroboam striving. He's doing this. and he, God didn't tell him to do all this. And look at what he's doing already. He's just, if not worse than what Solomon did, he's setting up these high places and he's going to basically create an alternate uh, substitute for worship. And why is he going to do it? Because Jeroboam isn't trusting in the Lord, because he's not letting God go before him and then simply acknowledging the moving and the works and the gifts of God that way. He then feels personally responsible that he has to somehow make this happen. You ever been like that in your life where you, you turn around and something happens and you feel like, man, I got it. I know, Lord, you got it here. 
And some, I got to get it over the, the, the rest of the way. I got to get it over that line. You know, I got to get the first down, right? You know, some fun, football analogy for some of you recently. You know, I know I personally in my life, I, I, I deal with that constantly. You know, Lord, where do I start and stop? Where do you start and stop? It's something that's constant in ministry, uh, especially a pastor of a church. Lord, what do you want to do? You know, do you, this year, is this ministry what you want to do and support? Or Lord, are you changing this ministry and, and, and what we're doing here? I mean, it's constantly being just uh, literally flexible and to be wielded by God as a tool, as a vessel having no opinion or idea of what you want to do, but being led by the Lord. That's what God seeks from each and every one of us. But he starts striving, and this is going to lead to a whole another problem, just like uh, Solomon when he led all of them in sin. They're going to repeat the same sin from 500 years ago with Aaron. They're going to make a, a golden calf. You would think you would, I mean, we kind of smile and laugh here, but before we're so quick to throw the dart at Jeroboam, maybe I should put my picture on that dartboard because how often do I do that? How often am I so quick to think I've gotten past that last trial, that last correction? I've learned from that. Boy, I won't do that again. And I find myself at another fork in the road. And what do I do? The same thing I did last time that I thought I learned from, right? I'm, I'm repeating the same sin. I'm just rinsing and repeating, right? Maybe I'm the only one here, but, but I can tell you it happens, and it's exactly what's happening with Jeroboam. And what's so sad is he has deceived himself to not even realize that he's doing this. So he goes on to say, and Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. What, what is that? Remember chapter 11, verse 38? God had promised him, I'm going to give you the kingdom, Jeroboam. So what was he doing? He was trusting in what? Himself. That's right. He wasn't trusting in the Lord. Now, how many of us have done that as well? Right? Let's be honest. We've done that. Something right before us, God gave us a word. I, I, you know, we're, we bought the land. We're buying the building. You know, okay, Lord, you know, we got the engineering. We got to, you know, $70,000. We got to raise that in the next little couple months. Okay, Lord. He tells you he's going to do it. And then what happens? I don't know. How's it going to work out? What's going to happen? How are we going to, you know, and we do, it happens. It's real. I don't hide it from you. We all think that way. And you know what we got to do? Put our eyes on Jesus. What happened when Peter took his eyes off Jesus and he was on the water? He beckoned him to come out. And what did he do? Sank. He began to drown. And isn't it interesting that he didn't use any of the thing that his anxieties or the what ifs, that could us, the should us, that's that what fills our mind with anxiety. It wasn't that that tanked him, was it? It was the common everyday wind that he never gave a thought about because it's there every day as a fisherman on the sea. He was so comfortable with it. He took it for granted and never even saw it coming. And that's what tanked him. Took his eyes off Jesus. Satan will use anything. He will use the most common thing in your life to draw you away to taking your eyes off Christ. Well... He went out from there and he built Penuel and Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their, what's it say there? Lord, lowercase. He's taking the place now, isn't he? Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill 
me. So what is he saying? He says, he's worried. He says, do you know what they're going to do? They're going to go back and worship Rehoboam if I let him go worship over in Jerusalem. God never said not to do that. God never prohibited them to go back to Jerusalem for feast days and to worship. God never didn't say that. God said, I'm going to give you the 10 kingdoms. You're going to be the king over them. You can do this here, that. But he never gave him any instruction about changing worship. He made, God's specific on how he wants us to worship him, isn't he? He's given us commandments and statutes and judgments, hasn't he? And you know what the problem that we run into with denominations? I'm not against denominations, but with denominations or different things like that, is it turns into a religion. Because we take one thing and we make that the thing, and when we make that one thing the thing, we, we don't realize we get off on all the other things. And it becomes works-based. It becomes idolatry. It becomes striving. It's because of the insecurity of Jeroboam here. He's afraid of Rehoboam. I mean, don't forget, Jeroboam's a mighty man of valor. And Rehoboam's not. And they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice from two... Or sorry, listen to this. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold. Because obviously Aaron's one calf wasn't enough right? And said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel. Oh my, underline that in your Bible. Is that not almost word for word to what Aaron said almost 500 years earlier in Exodus chapter, what is it, 32 verse 4? That same thing. Satan uses the same tricks, same bag of tricks. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. What this is telling us is he put one all the way far to the north of Israel, and then the other one is in Bethel, the house of God, or Bethel, the house of God, right? And he put it like that so that basically either way you had an area, you would travel all that way over there, but just don't cross over, right, and go and worship in Jerusalem. Now this thing became a sin, For the people went up to worship before the one as far as Dan. Friends, if you can make something with your hands and serve it, it's not God. It's not God. If you can make your God and destroy your God, it's not God. It's not God. If you can turn around and you can fathom and create all these different ideas, these religions, and I mean, boy, we've got enough of them. You, you, you look what's happening today, uh, and you turn around and you think somehow that's a substitute for the genuine worship of Jehovah, Elohim, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God Almighty. Never, never, there's never a substitute for genuine worship to the Lord. It became a sin. He made shrines on the high places and made priests for every class of people who were not of what? The sons of Levi? I mean, where do you draw the line at this point? That's, that's exactly what sin does. It causes you to... You, you can't even see it. I can't even see it when I'm, when I'm this far along. I can't even see it. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day in the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. Now he's making his own feast days. Doesn't that sound like a cult? Think of the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, 
I can just keep going. Isn't that what they've done? They've taken what was pure and holy and they've twisted it and they've changed it and they've, they've somehow made something they have better. And all they've done is made and fashioned another calf. It's all they've done. They've fashioned another calf, another feast day that you got to follow, another Sabbath that you have to meet on. It's, it's not biblical. It's not drawing you closer to Christ. It's drawing you closer to works. Jeroboam ordained at the feast of the 15th of the, uh, day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. It even says it here, to, he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high place, places which he had made. So he made other offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month where he had devised in his own heart Please underline devised. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. It didn't take long, did it? He took his eyes off God, trusted in himself, and now he created a religion. It didn't take long. Man is capable of all kinds of things given to himself. A religion. You know, God warned us about this. Turn in your Bibles. We're going to finish here tonight with these two verses. Turn to Galatians, please, chapter 1, verse 6. You know, the Lord has been sowing pearls or stringing pearls for us on this very concept in the last studies we've been having in 1 Timothy and then starting 2 Timothy and where we've been in Kings, this idea of false idols and doctrine and idolatry. And I don't think it's a coincidence because today we have so much coming at us on false worship and religion and other doctrines of man. I mean, pick and choose. Well, God's very clear. Look in Galatians 1.6. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, one of the earliest churches, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. Who's him? Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of what? Christ. Friends, that's the attack on the church today. Are you willing to stay with the gospel you have in your hands, the word of God, line by line and verse by verse? It's, he's given it to us. All 66 books are inspired by God. They're God-breathed. Or is it going to become Jesus plus something? Everybody's going to make that choice. And I find it so striking that Paul says, it's interesting that this is happening to you so soon. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church, the church of Galatia. He wasn't talking to the lost and unsaved world. He was talking to believers that, that should know this, that have been given proper doctrine. And yet, even while given the proper doctrine, what did they do? They chose an alternate gospel. Remember what I was 
sharing through that and teaching. We're in Galatians. And then where did we just finish off recently? Timothy. Let's, since we're right in the New Testament, turn to 1 Timothy 6, please. Again, I, I, I encourage us all to pay attention corporately as a body. When we see the Lord saying these things to us, remember, just like Solomon, he doesn't waste his breath, God. He inspires his word. We just happen to be in 1 Kings. We happen to just be in 1 Timothy. And the theme is not all that different. Be careful, Timothy, of another doctrine. Be careful, Timothy. I want you to understand how the conduct of the church is to be. Chapter 1, verse, or chapter 3, right, of 1 Timothy. Look at chapter 6. What, what, what is he going to say here in chapter 6, verse 3 and 5? Three, verses 3 through 5 in chapter 6. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the teaching, that's what that word doctrine means, which accords with godliness, he is proud. It's almost like he's going to start to describe Jeroboam here, even Rehoboam. Knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, for which comes envy, strife, rivaling, brawling, evil, suspicions, useless wranglings. Remember we talked about this, like friction of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In front, and he says, and from such, what are you to do? What are we all to do? We're to withdraw ourselves. You're not to flirt with the, the idolatry. You're not to flirt with the pagan idol. You're not to stay involved in a cult or in some type of religion or something like that. He's get out. What are you doing? Get to a Bible-based church where the word of God is being taught and let the word of God renew your mind. It just reminds me what he was saying, you know, when he talked about the great apostasy in chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, some will what? Depart from the faith. He says, I've told you. I've warned you, giving heed to deceiving spirits. He nails it. He tells you what the authorship is here. And doctrines of demons. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. You know that word hypocrisy means actor in the Greek. It means one that acts something out. Acting one way, doing another. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then he goes into these works of religion, you know, forbidding to marry. You know, I think of the Roman Catholic Church, right? And, you know, can't marry. You know, where, where does that say that in Scripture, that priests can't marry? You know, he goes on to food. Well, you can't eat this food. you got to be a vegetarian. What did Romans say about that? He talks about that, you know, the weaker vessel in aspect of maturity. You remember that? I mean... He's warning us, right? Romans 14, verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith. He's not talking about like, he's talking about mature, uh, feasting on the milk and not the meat, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who eats or is weak only eats vegetables. Let him who 
eats despise, let not him who eats not despise him who does not eat, and let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant to his own master? He stands or falls. Indeed, he will be able to be made to stand. God is able to make him stand. One person now, what does he read in verse 5? One person esteems what? One day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each one fully be convinced in his mind. You read these passages over and over again in Scripture, and yet there are denominations, there are religions that come out and say, no, you must meet on this day of the week. What? I'm sorry, I, I, the Jerusalem Council met. You remember that? Acts, in your Bible, Acts chapter what? Let's turn there. Look at uh, verse, or chapter 15, verse 22. Paul goes back and says, what, are we under the law or are we not under the law? What's happening here? Paul knew he wasn't under the law. Let's settle this once for all. Let's, let's not entertain religion. Let's engage in relationship. And he gives a very clear degree. He says that, that it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and Silas, judging them among the brethren. Again, it's chapter 15, verse 22. They wrote this letter to them, the apostle, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren whom are in the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of you who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we have no such commandment. It seems good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas Silas, who also report the same things by the word of the mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, God himself, and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And he lays what they are. This is the foundation of the Christian church that you abstain from things offered to idols. From blood. From things strangled. And from sexual immorality. That's it. If you keep yourself from these, you will do what? Please underline that in your Bible. What does it say there? You do well. That's it. This whole thing about Judaizing and legalism and every other thing like that. It's all attempts to distract you from the very beautiful relationship you have in Jesus Christ. What foods you eat, what food you don't eat, what day you meet on, what day you don't meet on, what gospel that's alternate because you need to do this and focus more on this and that. And what's our focus should, what, what should our focus be on? Jesus the word of God. And I'm, I'm spending these moments where I'm closing here because I, I don't see this often when God brings this all culminating like this together where he took the verses and passages in 1 Kings and he's saying, watch now. We read it in Timothy and he's saying, watch now. He's speaking to the church here. He's speaking to somebody in this church. He's speaking maybe to many of us. Because in these last days, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith because they'll give heed to deceiving spirits and demons because they'll begin to follow alternate gospels. God doesn't waste his breath. He's telling that to us just like he told it to Solomon ahead of time to warn us, to protect us, 
There's not a single soul in here or watching or listening to this right now that can say we didn't know. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. We're going to pray and have a, a closing song here tonight. I'm thankful unto the Lord that he's speaking mightily to this flock. He's protecting us. He loves us. You know, we're seeing a lot of things uh, change so quickly today. We are in the last, last days. Things are happening so quickly from a prophetic perspective. And he wants us to not be overwhelmed by that. He doesn't want us to be afraid in the days we're living and the things we're seeing. He wants us to stand firm and faithful. Father, we are ever so grateful for your holy word that you have anointed God. It is God-breathed, Lord. We believe you have breathed it and given it to us for exhortation, Lord, for even correction, encouragement. Lord, I pray that we will take these words that you've spoken here tonight through your holy word, and we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. We'd be ever so careful, Lord, to not begin to believe fables and wives' tales and stories like that and chasing after genealogies and false doctrines and all those things. Lord, I pray you protect the bride of Christ all around the world, Lord. All around the world, every city, every country where you have your people and you have a remnant. I pray, God, that you'll strengthen them as we pray tonight, Lord, for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and, Lord, North Korea and China and all of these communist areas, Lord, where, as you know, they're killing your children, martyring them. God, we pray for strength in these last days to stand and not compromise, to praise you and worship you as the one true God, to follow your commandments, statutes, and judgments, Lord, and enjoy the grace that you have so liberally poured out before us. Lord, protect us from being Nicolaitans at our workplace or wherever we may be in Allow us to be servant leaders after you, Jesus, since you've given us such a mighty example. We'll worship you and you alone, Lord. Never let us form or make something of our own hands that we worship in idolatry. Never let anything come between our hearts and you, Jesus Christ. We pray and ask these things, and I pray a blessing on your people, Lord. Bless your people here tonight, Lord God. And we pray all this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen.